Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well. I've had the flu all week. This week we have a horrific crime that happened south of Sydney in 1994. It's about the murder of a complete family by the father. So just a trigger warning on this one. And let's get straight into it. References tonight are from the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age newspaper, uh, culturalatlas.sbs.com.au. And most of it has come from court records. Okay, so let's cast our minds back to 1994. O.J. Simpson's being chased down the highway in his Bronco. Nancy Kerrigan is attacked and Tonya Harding goes on to win the figure skating. Kurt Cobain dies and so does Ayrton Senna. And the Hubble Space Telescope, well, it takes a photo of the ring of Uranus. So there you go. If you can remember any of those events, then the amount of time since then is the amount of time today's perpetrator served for killing his whole family. Not that long for killing four people, your own family, your wife and your kids. Now this guy's name is Lube Valevsky. Lube, his wife Snezana, married in 1986 when Lube was 21 and Snezana about 17. They had three daughters. One, Zeklina, born in 1988, and they had twins born in 1994. In 1994, they were living in a two-storey, three-bedroom home in Castle Court, Berkeley. Now, that's about 90 minutes drive south of Sydney towards Wollongong. Snezana, now I'm not 100% sure if she was born in Australia, but she certainly immigrated when she was very young as her parents, Kirill and Franka Josovowski, immigrated from the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, whereas Lube immigrated to Australia from Macedonia when he was 20 years old. Snezana took care of the house. She'd given up work once the kids were born. Now, I think she did a little bit of work in between Zeklinka being born and the twins. Now, she took care of her parents-in-law, her children and her husband. The parents-in-law, that's Lube's mum and dad, they lived in the house with them. Lube worked full-time at BHP Steelworks, which is only about a 10-minute drive up the road. Lube often worked triple shifts. So you can imagine working a triple shift in a steelworks. Not the best job in the world, but probably paying well and taking care of the family. Snazana's mum, although she lived a couple of suburbs away from her daughter, was still a large part of her life. So Lube's mum and dad, they are living with the family, but his mum was quite sick. Now, she'd suffered a stroke several years earlier. So you can imagine the stresses that come out in these sorts of arrangements. Snazana wanted Lube's parents to move out, but Lube resisted and called Snazana's parents out for actually not helping enough with the kids. Okay, so I had to look up how traditional family units were for Macedonians to see if this sort of living arrangement was just a cultural thing or whatever. So I'm just going to read out what I did find from SBS Cultural Atlas. Now it says, adult children, this is for Macedonians, adult children usually stay in the home of their parents until they're married. 
Traditionally, sons live in their parents' homes with their wives throughout their adulthood. However, if parents can afford it, they may prefer to build or buy a house for their son as a wedding gift, so he and his newlywed wife can live near the family. A daughter will move in with her husband's family at marriage or live as close to them as possible with her spouse. Now, it's usually a son's responsibility to care for his parents as the daughter is expected to attend to her in-laws. Now, if a man has moved out of his parents' home in adulthood, it's assumed that the parents will move into his house with his wife and children once they become too old to care for themselves. Okay, so from that, it is normal for the son to live with his parents or the parents to live with with the son and for the wife to join them. And once they have their own house, the parents get old, they go to live in the son's house. So for Lube, the living arrangements were quite normal. But for Snazana, who was raised in Australia, she probably found the living arrangements a bit too traditional for her liking. It's hard to say, but this was a cause of friction and arguments in early 1994. And so much so that Snazana told Lube that she wanted to take the kids and move out of the house. So you can imagine the stress Snazana would have been under with newly born twins a six-year-old daughter, plus Lube and his parents to take care of. And by the way, at this stage, there's no record of any domestic violence in the household. Not that it didn't happen, there is no record. So, on the 20th of June, 1994, at about 3.30pm, Lube spoke to one of his neighbours asking for help because he couldn't find his family and the main bedroom door was locked. The neighbour was worried about the way Lube was acting and he was pretty concerned for the family's welfare. He ends up calling police. Now, police come to the house soon after 4pm. The door to the main bedroom was locked. One officer bent down and looked under the floor. The police broke into the room in the end. There they found four bodies in the space between the edge of the double bed and a cot. So the layout of this room when you entered was on the right-hand side against the wall, as soon as you walk in, there was a cot. In the middle of the room was a double bed against the right-hand side wall, and there were bedside tables. Snazana's body lay roughly parallel to the bed and the cot on top of the bodies of the three children. Now, there was blood pooled around the bodies, so an ambulance is is obviously going to get called. Now, one ambulance officer, he climbed on the double bed to check for signs of life. There were none. It was pretty obvious there was none, even when the police came in. A pathologist, a Dr. Bradhurst, and a forensic scientist, Ms. Bealby, later examined the scene in great detail. A kitchen knife was found under Snazana's body. Okay, so we have a mother, a six-year-old daughter, and the two twins who are about around six months old, all had their throats cut. In the case of Snazana, there were two severe cuts into the cervical spine, one of which cut into the spinal cord. The bodies were found on top of one another with the twins face down on the floor. Zacklina's face down on top of the twins and their mother face down on top of her. A knife was found directly under Snazana's body at head height. The room itself bore no sign of a struggle or forced entry. 
Now, Dr. Bradhurst, who examined the bodies before they were removed from the bedroom and later conducted a post-mortem examination, placed the time of the deaths between 9pm on the night of Sunday 19th of June and 5am on Monday the 20th of June. There was a very considerable quantity of blood in the area where the bodies lay. There was also blood on the side of the cot, on the lower part of the bedside cabinet adjacent to the bed, on the wall and skirting board behind the bed, underneath the bed and on part of the bed linen which was overhanging the bed near the floor. The absence of blood in other parts of the bedroom led to Dr. Bradhurst to conclude that the injuries had been inflicted in the area in which the bodies were found. Moreover, Dr. Bradhurst's unchallenged opinion was that Snazana's head must have been close to the floor when some, if not all, of her injuries were inflicted. Zaklina's body revealed that she sustained defensive type wounds. It would be determined that all four victims died sometime, like I said, between 9pm Sunday on the 19th of June and 5am in the morning of Monday. Apart from Lube and his wife and children, the only other occupants of the house at the relevant time were his aged parents, his father Petri and his mother Tassa. Investigations revealed no blood or blood stains on their clothing or that of Lube. Extensive tests were also conducted throughout the house for traces of blood, including with polylight equipment which can detect minute traces. Apart from the area of the main bedroom where the bodies were found, no blood was located in any other part of the house or even in the drainage system. Nor was any trace of blood found on any of the light switches in the main bedroom. Moreover, testing of the steering wheel of Lube's car revealed no trace of blood. Importantly, there was also no evidence that any attempt had been made to conceal or remove any blood staining. Lube will be interviewed by homicide detectives and he reckoned that Snazana was in a highly distressed and irritable state on the morning of the 19th of June. Now, following a telephone conversation with her mum, Snazana indicated to Lube and his parents that she and the children were going to move into a flat. Lube had also told a Detective Sergeant McGrath on the day after the bodies were found that Snazana had also told him that she was not happy with his parents living with them. Lube reckoned his wife then took the twins into the main bedroom and locked the door. This occurred at approximately 11am on the 19th. Lube then reckons he stayed with his parents for some little time and went into six-year-old Zaglina's room at approximately 1pm. He said that he remained there until early the next morning without leaving the room, even to go to the dunny. He said he didn't see his wife or the twins after Snazana went into the bedroom. He told Detective Sergeant McGrath that he'd seen Snazana prepare Zaglina's lunch for school and his father backed him up on that, saying that it occurred in the kitchen around 8.30pm on the 19th. Now, Lube's father told police on the 20th of June, this is the day the bodies were found, that he had eaten dinner with his wife, Zaklina, and Lube on the 19th of June. Now, they would both deny this later. Upon waking up on Monday morning, the 20th at 6am, Lube reckons he knocked on the door of the main bedroom and received no response. Now, shortly after this, he drove his parents to his sister's place. He returned home to collect various things for his parents and then drove back to his sister's. 
He said he took his parents to his sister's house because he wanted to speak with his wife in their absence so that he could find out what was troubling her. He didn't knock on the door of the main bedroom, call out to his wife, or attempt to open the door during the period in which he returned home to collect his parents' belongings. When he returned to his sister's, she advised him to contact the Macedonian Welfare Association and suggested that Snazana may have gone to her parents' house. Lube at no time attempted to contact Snezana's parents. However, he did go to the Macedonian Welfare Association. He arrived there at approximately 11am and spoke to a social worker, a Miss Nikolovska. At the Macedonian Welfare Association, Lube asked Miss Nikolovska if his wife had been there. He was told that she hadn't. Now, after some further conversation, Miss Nikolovska advised Lube to contact Snezana's parents and to check at Zaklina's school. During the course of the day, Lube told various persons to whom he spoke that Miss Nikolovska had told him that he couldn't contact the police as Snezana hadn't been missing for 24 hours. Now, this really isn't true. And she said that he should actually wait until maybe 3 p.m. before contacting the police, which is just rubbish anyway. In fact, he did contact the police through his neighbour, remember, at about 3.25 p.m., which on his account was a little more than about 24 hours since he'd last seen his wife. Now, after leaving the Macedonian Welfare Association, Lube went home and collected two notes explaining Zaklina's absence from school the previous Friday. So she's been off school on the Friday before. The notes, he said, were in the kitchen. He then went to Zaklina's school and asked if she was there. He then returned home. At approximately 1pm, he phoned Snazana's aunt, telling her that he was looking for his wife and children. He said he tried to persuade her to phone Snezana's parents. I don't know why he doesn't do it himself. According to the aunt, he told her that he and Snezana had been arguing and that Snezana had left and taken the children with her. On the aunt's account, she told him to phone Snezana's parents and he informed her, as he had earlier informed the social worker and later his neighbour, that he didn't know the telephone number to his wife's parents. I mean... Jeez, we're talking 1994 here, so it's not like our mobile phone live, which tends to be a little bit different. We had phone books back then, or we'd have little black books, you know, with hundreds of phone numbers, phone numbers scribbled in it next to the phone. You usually actually had to remember people's phone numbers. So you'd, I knew my grandma's phone numbers, I knew house phone numbers, mate's phone numbers. For him to say he didn't know his wife's parents' number or had any idea where to find it, it's just a little bit strange. Anyway, at around 3pm, Lube, as we said before, approached his neighbour, Mr Jorge, to inquire if he'd seen his wife. Now, it was at this stage that the neighbour rang the police. Mr Jorge interrupted the conversation with the police to ask Lube when he last saw his wife. Now, Mr Jorge informed police that Lube's English was poor, but that he said since two o'clock this morning that the door has been locked. At this stage, it's convenient to note that although Lube said he didn't know for how long he was simply lying down in that Zaklina's room and how long he was sleeping while in the room, 
He gave investigating police slightly different accounts at different times. Now, as we all know, this is always a worry. In an interview with Senior Constable Steveniuk on the 20th of June, Lube said, I slept a little. I just laid there for periods because I was depressed. Then on the 22nd of June, he said he'd gone to sleep at 1pm. In an interview on the 5th of July, he likened his sleep to the dead. And on the 18th of July, in another interview, he said, I've never slept for that long what I did on that day, for 17 hours. Now, later on the 20th of July, when asked why he'd slept for 17 hours, he replied, I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine how. Why I slept so long, because this has never happened before in my life. So... As we true crimers know, when a story changes multiple times, it's probably not 100% true. Because if you actually experience an event, you can go back over it in your mind and recount it pretty much the same each time. In fact, you can usually go backwards in time pretty reliably. Now, when you're making up a story, it's so much harder to recall what happened when asked multiple times over multiple days. You didn't experience it. It was made up in your head, and you may not forget it. You're not going back on experience. Now, this lock or the safety catch on the main bedroom door, everyone's seen this. It can easily be released on the outside by the insertion of, say, a screwdriver, a small stick into the slot on the outside of the door handle, kitchen knife, whatever. Now, Lube denied that he knew how to open the door from the outside. I don't know. Although the slot on the outside door handle was pretty obvious, even the first police officers to arrive at the scene on the 20th of June asked Lube for a hammer with which to bash a hole through the door rather than just using using this easy inbuilt mechanism. So if the cops don't know how to just do it, I don't really know. And it can't be a, a normal type lock where you lock with a key on the outside. That's against most building codes around the world, I'm pretty sure. So, Lube didn't knock on the door to see if they were there or tried to get into the room the whole time he after they went in there and he went into Zaglina's room to sleep. Now, does this mean he's tried to make it an alibi that he had no idea the dead bodies of his wife and children were in the room? Look, I, I tell you, if... Kate locked herself in the bedroom and the next day she was missing and the bedroom door was still locked and there was no noise whatsoever, I would be examining the locking mechanism. I would probably see the slot to unlock it. I'd go and get a screwdriver, a knife, whatever, and get it open. Simple as that. I'd probably be angry at this point, but I would get in. It'd be a bit of a, here's Johnny. So... I just don't believe Lube didn't try a little bit harder to get into this room. Okay, so there's going to be a couple of theories as to what happened here. Did Snazana kill her daughters and then kill herself? Did Lube kill everyone? I guess there could be a third theory as well. Snazana could have killed the kids, say, and then Lube killed her. But this really wasn't taken as a possible theory. Neither was any theory that an outsider or Lube's parents killed them. So it's going to take six months for police to charge Lube with the murders of his family. He will strongly deny he was involved and plead his innocence. 
Now, all four victims suffered wounds which produced great loss of blood. No blood stains were found anywhere in the house except in the area immediately under and surrounding the bodies. There were blood stains on a bedside table which formed part of a single headboard and side table unit for the double bed. Now, there were blood stains on the wall and on the skirting board closest to the heads of the victims. Almost all of the blood was below the height of the double bed. There were no blood stains on the door handles or light switches and nothing suggested they had been wiped clean. Snazana died wearing a nightie, bed jacket and underwear. Zaklina was wearing a tracksuit. Each of the twins was wearing sleeved nightwear enclosed at the foot in the fashion of a sleeping bag. Now Snazana's body was found face down on top of the other bodies, yet there was a lot of blood on the back of her bed jacket. Now, that included blood identified as her own blood and blood from Zaklina and blood from one or both of the twins. There was a little blood staining on the backs of the babies, despite both Zaklina and Snazana both being found in a position where the head and neck area of each was on top of the baby's backs. The legs and feet of Snazana had almost no blood on them except for three linear blood marks on her outer calf, which an expert in bloodstain patterns, a Mr. Raymond, thought to be suggestive of finger marks. From what it looked like, the bodies had been positioned after death in that the bloodstains didn't make sense in regards to whose blood was where. It also looked like the bed had been at a slight angle to the wall when Snazana's throat was cut because of the blood spatter on that wall, which was would then be covered by the bed being put back in place. So after... Her throat was cut, someone moved the bed. Now, this bed could have been slightly moved by the first responders, but it was moved after her throat was cut. Now, Dr. Bradhurst, he was the pathologist on the scene, he had the view that it was probably murder-suicide with Snazana killing the kids and cutting her own throat. Now, other expert witnesses would be of the opinion after seeing crime scene photos and the autopsy report that it was a homicide perpetrated by Lube. Okay, the case against Lube, basically it's entirely circumstantial. But it differed from most circumstantial cases as it was presented as a case of what they call true alternatives. Either Snazana killed her children and then committed suicide, or Lube killed his wife and children. In the case of true alternatives, the exclusion of one necessarily proves the other. Now, there were surveillance devices put in the house to listen in on Lube and his parents. Now, after a considerable amount of time, they were unable to get any further evidence. That means they were listening in on their conversations. There was nothing ever brought up about, oh, yeah, lucky you got rid of my bloody clothes or lucky we did this or that or whatever. There was just nothing came out of it. Now, the jury trial, it lasted for seven weeks and Lube would be found guilty on all counts, sentenced to 25 years with eligibility for parole in 2016 after 19 years. Okay, there's going to be two appeals in this case with the majority of the justices agreeing with the verdict and these appeals were dismissed. Lube has maintained his innocence all along. He's refused any reformative or rehabilitation-type programs while inside, as he says, he didn't do it. And to participate in these programs, 
is basically admitting guilt. Also, even after he was able to apply for parole in 2016, he refused to do so, as that would also imply he did it because he'd have to go up there and say, I've got all this remorse for what I did. He was, however, just released, just a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago, after serving his full term of 25 years. Okay, so let's just go over the two appeals a little bit and what the dissenting justices had to say. Now, in the Court of Criminal Appeal, David Kirby was in dissent. He was impressed by six matters in particular, which he regarded as sufficient to require that the verdict be quashed. Now, the first of these was the apparent absent of motives. Now, I, I don't know about that. If Snezana was going to leave and take away his kid, that might be enough to motivate someone who's working triple shifts at a steelworks for his family to lose it and maybe go and kill everyone rather than lose his family. As we know, this has happened often and it's happened recently. The second matter to which David Kirby referred to was the absence of blood traces elsewhere in the house or on clothing in it or on the steering wheel of Lube's car. Yeah, look, this is one that I can't work out. If you kill four people, you'd expect blood to be everywhere. But it wasn't found anywhere other than this immediate vicinity where the bodies were found. I mean, did Lube do a, a real Dexter and be able to clean up after killing them? There, there was just no residue of blood, even in the drains. There was nothing on his clothes that were found or in his car. Now, the third matter was the consistency of Lube's accounts to the investigating police officers and evidence. Okay, now you can make what you will from that, but we do know Lube changed his story over time in the days after the murders. A fourth matter of concern was that Lube had made some statements not long after the deaths of his wife and children, which were described as odd statements for him to make if he had murdered his family. Now, the statements were that he didn't believe that his wife could do that to the kids because she was very deep cut. And even yesterday, I never thought that my wife would do something like that to my children. We both loved our children. Look, honestly, I don't think that matters at all what he said after the murders so i can't see why david kirby is putting any weight on that at all anyway he also said he he was referring to the fact that covertly recorded conversations between lube and his parents did not hint of any involvement by him in snazana and the children's deaths and there was nothing to suggest that he coached his father about what he should say to police or in evidence well If his family genuinely had no idea what happened, then they probably wouldn't need to be coached on what to say. Like I said before, they they put listening devices in the house and they came up with nothing. That's a fair point on this. David Kirby next speculated that Snazana may have been psychiatrically disturbed. Now, his basis for for this is that her mother had been treated for depression and her brother, four years before, had suffered a breakdown. But the evidence for any light condition in Snazana's case, just it just wasn't there. So this appeal was dismissed. Now in the next appeal, Justice Mary Gordon questioned the expert evidence and thought they may be reasonable doubt. But again, the other justices dismissed the appeal. And I think this was more that the person who was actually on the scene 
thought it could have been a murder-suicide. The other experts brought in only saw crime scene photos and autopsy reports. So that's where she was pushing it, that, okay, maybe maybe we should quash this and maybe have another trial. I don't know, but, yeah, the appeal was dismissed. Now, like I said, he was freed from prison last week, but he's already failed to meet his obligations under the Child Protection Register. And somehow... I don't think he cares. Now, this was, he had to report to police every seven days. It got to day eight and he hadn't. Now, I haven't seen anything in the news really about that anymore. But honestly, I don't think this guy cares. Now, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. We have the convicted perpetrator who has from day one said he didn't do it and has maintained for the last 27, 28 years that he didn't do it. He has no remorse, which if you didn't do it, you wouldn't have remorse. He's never done any of the rehabilitation programs in prison, and he didn't even apply for parole, which he could have done six years ago. Now, he reckons Nazana went in the bedroom at 11 a.m. He 11 a.m. Then he went to Zeklina's room at 1 p.m. and stayed there till 6 a.m. the next morning when he awoke and knocked on the bedroom door Got no response. He goes about his day, including visits to Zuglina's school to see if she's there. By 4pm, the cops are called and arrive with the doors bashed open and the bodies discovered. I'm just going to go over part of the summary from the trial. First, some of the bloodstains on the twins was not deposited on their bodies in the position where they were found. Secondly, one of the twins came to rest in her final position only after significant volume of Snazana's blood had been deposited on the carpet and both projected and splashed onto the bedside unit. Thirdly, Snazana had a linear blood mark on her left forearm, typical of a mark that would be left if her forearm had been pressed into a bloody carpet. Her body was not found with that arm in that sort of position. Fourthly, there was a smear on the front of the bedside unit in blood that was from Snazana's that was consistent with it having been white when wet with the sleeping bag of one of the twins, which they were wearing. Fifthly, there was the limited blood staining on the heads of the twins, despite Snazana's body being on top of them. Sixthly, Zaglina's body was found with her leg in a position fixed in rigor mortis. Now, which in the opinion of some of the expert witnesses was not consistent with her having come to rest after death in the place in which she was found. Now, let's go over the rigor mortis a bit. Rigor mortis appears approximately two hours after death. In the muscles of the face, it progresses to the limbs over the next few hours, completing between six to eight hours after death. Now, rigor mortis then stays for another 12 hours. So that's, an, that's now 24 hours after death. And then it disappears. Now, finally, there was evidence from which the jury could conclude that the bed had been moved back to its normal position against the wall after Snezana had suffered a wound, which saw her blood deposited on the wall behind the bed. But we don't know if this, again, I've said it before, if this was moved when the ambulance crew got to the scene, they might have just bumped it back into position when they got on it. Now, Dr. Bradhurst, who was on the scene, thought it would probably had some probability of it being a murder-suicide. There were no bloody footprints. There's no evidence of any blood being washed down the drains. Lube had no bloody clothes that were found anyway or blood in his car. Also, 
there's no sort of bloody frenzied spatter marks against the wall that you would think would probably happen if Lubei attacked another adult, Snazana, or even the kids, like, just didn't exist. So maybe he didn't do it. Or there was reasonable doubt that he did, and the jury got it wrong. Now, if anyone out there has any thoughts on this, either go to the True Crime Island Facebook group to comment under this week's episode post, email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com, because I think this case, I think we can have some debate on this. Maybe the jury saw him as some immigrant that spoke only broken English and he looks like he did it, so guilty he is. The cops certainly took their time charging him around six months, so even they must have been scratching around for enough evidence to bring it to trial. All I can say, it looks like a very clean kill by Lube, or maybe his parents were able to help destroy evidence, getting rid of these bloody clothes. Look, this is all conjecture. I'm throwing around a few ideas on what could have gone on because there's five people who know the truth and four of them are dead. Personally, so I've just been the devil's advocate, I think Lube was involved. I just wish we could all know the truth with more certainty. So that's the end of this week's episode. A little bit of controversy. But... Did the jury get it right? Honestly, I don't know. Or do we need another trial, really? But it's too late. I mean, he served his time. What What are they going to do? There's nothing we can do now. I think they should have actually had another trial. But anyway, I'm a podcaster, not a lawyer, if you didn't know. <laughs> okay, I'd like to thank my patrons, past and present, for keeping the lights on at the island. And we actually, we're coming up to into our seventh year soon because I'm getting all the bills through from Squarespace and, and my domain name. So, that, yeah, we're nearly on six. I think uh, September will be six years finished. If you would like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. If you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. Now, I'm, I haven't got any names this week. Honestly, I've been sick as a dog. I haven't been in front of the computer much. So next week I'll have a shout-out for any of these people who've given in the recent weeks. Boomfuckalunga, everybody. Now, can I just ask, if you take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook, whatever, the island's one of the only few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial-free. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. And the only commercials I put in here are to help out fellow podcasters or, or for books that I've read or whatever. And there's two good books I've just read. Well, I've read multiple times, actually, or really listened to on Audible. I am going to bring these two cases they're probably going to take a lot of times to, for me to get it right. But they're sort of linked and they're great books to read. Anyway, I just bumped the mic. Sorry. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use iTunes or a pod player and have links to merch, all that social media stuff is there as well. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, please email me. Or don't send me DMs, please. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boom, fuck a longer.